0: You turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We'll complete Matthew 24 today and we'll be halfway through what is known as the Olivet Discourse. This is Christ's uh, teaching to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. We'll finish chapter 24 today and then we'll take a summer's pause as we begin to study line by line, the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, we've been reciting that as a church for, for quite some time now, and some of us still don't know the significance of it, and that's okay, because it's uh, old words. And our hope is that as we study it together and we see where all of this comes from in Scripture, we'll, we'll remember how important it is to, to unite ourselves with the church historical in the confession of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. So we're in Matthew chapter 24. Today we'll finish up, and we're going to start in verse 36. That's page 829 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. And if you're new with us, just keep it open, because we will be verse by verse going through this text today, and you'll, you want to be able to see it with your own eyes. Matthew 24, verse 36 so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, This is the word of our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we have opened up this chapter of Matthew that I have admittedly came to with trepidation and fear and confusion, Lord, you have answered our prayers. And you have revealed to us the instruction from our Lord. And Lord, it's been precious, and so we thank you. Thank you that every bit of your word is profitable for us. That what seems like obscure prophecy, when we look closely, your Spirit's help. We see the love of our Savior. And we're encouraged and we're built up and we're prepared to wait for his return. So, Lord, continue to do that for us today. Open our eyes to what our Savior has for us in this word. Give us understanding and help us to wait for Christ's return. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. So far, as we've looked to Matthew 24, we, we, we've learned some things about how, how Jesus wants us to wait, and these are the things that Jesus has taught us. He first told us at the beginning of this chapter, "Do not be led astray." He said, "You're going to endure perse- persecution." He said, "You're going to endure severe trials. There will be people who claim to come in the name of Christ to show you another way, another gospel. But do not be led astray by them. Stay the course. Secondly, he told us in that first section, do not be alarmed. There would be many things to be alarmed by. But don't be. God is in control. When it feels like things couldn't possibly be worse, they will get worse. And yet we are to remember that God is still sovereign over all that will take place in the course of history. So we as his people shouldn't be panicky, shouldn't be anxious or alarmed. Last week we saw that God takes extraordinary care for the elect. That's the third thing he has shown us. We as, as God's children adopted into his family through Christ's work We are his children. We are under the Father's care. And finally, the Lord showed us last week that his word is trustworthy. The word of Christ is trustworthy. No matter what happens, Jesus' word is sure. Everything that he tells us, he tells us because we need to hear it. In John's gospel, Jesus says that everything he says, he says because the Father tells him to say these things. We can trust him. We can trust the Lord's word. And all of that we saw, we've seen over the last few weeks, all of that was particularly relevant to the disciples who Jesus was speaking to here, because in their lifetime, they would endure everything that Jesus had predicted. There would be false teachers, and there were. There were false Christs as well. There was persecution. There were Christians in the disciples' time who were flogged and tortured and brought before courts and crucified. And just as Jesus said, there was a great time of tribulation in Jerusalem when the city was judged by God for rejecting Messiah. Everything that Jesus prophesied would happen in the lifetime of the disciples happened. And so we, we, we see, we can understand that heeding Christ's words was necessary for these men to endure those trials and remain in the faith. And as we saw, those warnings and encouragements from Jesus were relevant to us as well. They're not just uh, bits of history that we study. These things that Christ said to his disciples, they're profitable for us. Jesus is defining in Matthew 24, in this discourse, Jesus is defining how we are to live as we wait for his return. Matthew 24 contains in it the seed of teaching that will grow into the teaching of the disciples. All of this instruction that Jesus gives his disciples here in Matthew 24, the disciples we see giving to the church when you read the epistles. How we live now while we wait for Christ to return is very much the Christian life. This is a massively important chapter for the church. And its relevance is very much in view this week as well. In this morning's text, Jesus shifts the context of the teaching a little bit. So he's shifting from Kind of a mix of the things that will occur in the lifetime of the disciples and future things, to to particularly focusing on future things. The, The talk this week moves to Christ's return. And here's what we see. Here's what we'll see in this morning's text. The day of Christ's return is unknown. And it will come unexpectedly. Therefore, Christ's followers must be alert, they must be ready, and they must be faithful. So let's make that personal. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back, he will come unexpectedly. We're expecting him. And as Christ's followers, we are to expect him, but he will come unexpectedly. And so, we should be alert. We should be ready. And we must be faithful while we wait. All right. so so what we're going to do this week is simply go verse by verse through this instruction from our Lord. We'll start with verse 36. It seems like an appropriate place. Where we find here in verse 36, the time of Christ's return is unknown. Look again at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So when Jesus says that day, he means the day of the Lord, what is known as judgment day. It's, it's the day when King Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, as we confessed. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows when it is. So in, in the context of, of Matthew 24 as a whole, that day is, is compared to the the day that there would be signs leading up to. So, So in verse 15, speaking of the coming destruction of the temple, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains. When you see this happening, you need to leave Judea. So you have specific instruction concerning something you see. But concerning that day, You see the the juxtaposition here concerning that other day, the day of the Lord? Nobody knows when that's coming. There aren't any signs for when that's coming. The timing of that day is unknown. The, The highest ranking angels in heaven are not privy to that information. Not even the Son knows when he's coming back. This knowledge, Jesus says, belongs to the Father only. Now, the idea here, what Jesus is communicating for us, is that the timing is unknown. And we could just leave it at that and move on. But before we do, I need to take a brief pause because, well, if you think about it, if you even take just a moment to, to process what Jesus just said, this is kind of a difficult issue theologically, isn't it? After all, Jesus is God, isn't he? And if he's God, then how can there be something that the Father knows, but Jesus the Son doesn't know? That would make him not all-knowing and less than God. So to answer this quandary, we we, we have to ask, well, what does Jesus mean by the Son here? There are a few ways that we see Matthew use the Son as he... um, writes this gospel, led along by the Spirit, in a few ways that Jesus himself speaks of himself as the Son. The first place we see the Son, or a Son, is is when Jesus is born. He's born as the Son of Mary. The second place where we observe some sort of Sonship is in his baptism. So Jesus goes under the water, he comes back up, the Spirit, like a dove, comes down upon Jesus. This is all back in Matthew chapter 3. Spirit comes down upon Jesus. He anoints Jesus. And that's important because that's the moment when the Father reveals from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In that sense of Jesus' sonship, he's being revealed as the anointed one, as the Messiah. You're, you'll remember, or maybe you won't, it was a long time ago, but when we studied that, we saw. In Matthew 3, that there are Isaiah 42 elements, the beloved one. There are Psalm 2 elements, the Son. This is all, we we saw very clearly, this is all Messiah language. God is identifying Jesus as the Son, the same way that Adam is said to be the Son of God, the same way that the nation of Israel is said to be the Son of God. It means he's the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the one who would bring the heavenly kingdom to earth. And that man, Jesus, was born, and he matured, and he grew in wisdom. That means he had to learn things. And he grew in stature, and he hungered, and he thirsted, and he had human emotions. The Son, the Messiah, is and was fully human. And as a human, there would certainly be things he did not know. Matthew has already told us, Jesus told us, he didn't even know who would sit at his right hand and at his left. It makes total sense then that he, he wouldn't know when he was returning. And all that's true. And yet, we still have this nagging feeling, don't we? And yet, it's still true that the Son is eternal in a way that Adam was not eternal in the way that Israel is not eternal. Why? Well, at the end of Jesus' ministry... When he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, he commands his, uh, his apostles to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. The Son there, remember we're trying to answer what is the Son, what does he mean here? The Son there at the end of Matthew is being revealed to us as possessing equality with the Father And the Holy Spirit. In other words, he is a man, but he is God. So what does son mean here? Well, it means both. The incarnate son and the eternal son. They're the same person. And and in his humanity, as the anointed king, as Messiah, he, Jesus, has been sent to do something that Adam... And Israel and every king of Israel failed to do. Jesus has been called upon by God to demonstrate absolute and total reliance on the Father. When when tempted, Adam failed in this. He chose to become or try to become equal with God. When tempted, everyone in Israel who ever was failed in this. Jesus was tempted similarly to the ways that Adam and Israel were. Think of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And, and, And now think specifically about what those temptations were. Turn stones into bread, command the angels, take shortcuts to your sovereignty. Think of the temptation that the devil made through Peter. Avoid the cross. Think of the temptation that the devil made through the people who cursed Jesus. If you are the Son of God, save yourself, come down from the cross. Jesus possessed the divine power and ability to do any of these things. In every temptation, Jesus was being tempted to step out of complete trust and total reliance on the Father. He was being tempted to use that divine power for himself, for his own self-preservation. And yet, what does Paul say in Philippians 2? What earned Jesus the name above every name? His obedience. His obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in the same way that Jesus, as God, had the power to turn stones into bread or command angels or to have taken himself off the cross. He could have accessed divine knowledge. But he didn't. It wasn't for the Messiah, the Son, to know those things. It wasn't for him to know when he would return. That knowledge was, so to speak, think of Adam, knowledge from the forbidden tree. And our our Messiah, sinless as he was, obedient as he was, dependent on the Father as he was, humble as he was, Jesus, Messiah, would not take knowledge that was for the Father's purview. That's the theology swirling around that verse. But the theology isn't even the point here. The point, and if your mind has been wandering, pay attention here, the point of verse 36 is that if the Son, the one whom would soon be given all authority in heaven and on earth, if the one who will judge the entire world is to trust the Father with the timing of his own return, then who are we to think that we should have that knowledge? John Broadus, one of the founders of our denomination, he puts it this way I want to read you a quote. He says, If the God man, the mediator, left this and many other things to the Father alone, how cheerfully should we, his followers, rest in ignorance that cannot be removed, trusting in all things to our Heavenly Father's wisdom and goodness, striving to obey his clearly revealed will, and leaning on his grace for support. Isn't that good? That's what Jesus did, isn't it? Filled with the Holy Spirit, led along by the Spirit, Jesus always relied on the Father in all things. Through what the Father revealed to him and through what the Father did not reveal to him. Through the glory of the transfiguration and through the humility of the cross, the Son submitted in all things to the Father. And we... Listen, if we have been born again into Christ, into the Son, we have the same spirit. And Jesus' heavenly Father is our Father. So we can and we should in all things trust the Father in his wisdom and goodness. And those things like when Jesus will return. The Father has hidden that from us. And he has not done so in some just to keep it from us. It's not evil in what he's doing, it's for our good, so that we would trust him. So let's trust him. And in what he has revealed, and he has revealed a whole lot more than what he hasn't, and in what he has revealed, like how we are to live in Christ while we wait. By the power of the Spirit, we should strive to obey him. The second thing that Jesus shows us, the first thing is that that timing is unknown, and that's okay, all right? The second thing that Jesus shows us is that when he does return, the world won't be expecting it. And he uses a comparison to the Genesis flood to get that point across. See the comparison in verses 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The them, in this passage, that's an important pronoun. The them is the world. The world likes the pronoun they, them. (sighs) The, the them in this passage is the world, those, those who were not set apart by God. He, he's talking about those who were taken by the flood, taken in judgment, all right so, so the world at that time was clueless as to the coming judgment of the Lord. But when you read the Genesis narrative in the Bible, you don't see what some of the mythology surrounding that has come up with, that they were laughing at him and caring you know that people were surrounding. Him. you just see. God's command to Noah, Noah obeying, and then judgment. It's not like the storybooks. It's it's the Bible. It's God's word. The world was clueless as to the coming judgment of the Lord. They, They were carrying on as if there was no judgment coming. They weren't expecting judgment. And even when judgment comes, it will be so swift that the world won't be able to prepare. So the future judgment, the world's it will be will be swift. How swift will it be? Look at verses forty and forty-one. Two men will be working in the field. One is taken. Then in verse forty-one, two women are grinding grain at the mill. One is taken. This taking here, you should hear echoes from Psalm, the Psalm that uh, that Mark read for us. This taking is taking in judgment. Right? That's what. Those who are taken are taken in judgment, much like the flood that swept the, the world away. The judgment takes them away. In the flood, the people of the world were living their life as if there were no concerns and they were swept away. At the return of Christ, people will be carrying about their business, and in the blink of an eye, judgment will come and they will be taken away. Before the flood, Noah was warned Wasn't he? He was set apart and he was warned of the coming judgment. And he was given instruction, very specific instruction, on what he should do while he waited. And Noah heeded the warning. He obeyed. He heeded the warning. And while he waited, he was faithful to the Lord. He obeyed the Lord and he was preserved through the judgment. And what Jesus is getting at here is that our response to this warning should be like Noah's response. We should trust that what the Lord says is true. He is returning. And we should obey what he says to do while we wait. And we don't have to look far for what he says to do. The next three commands are in the next few verses. It says to be awake and be ready and be faithful. That's who we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be up to while we wait. Be awake, be ready, be faithful. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake because you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Stay awake. And that does not mean that we can't ever physically go to sleep, right? This alertness that Jesus is... commanding us to is in regards to our spiritual awareness it means we're to have a constant awareness of christ's imminent return in the epistles as you as you read you you see it described as sober-mindedness always aware always aware that that jesus is returning we're sober-minded in this life because of what we know is coming next at any moment The imminent imminent return of Christ affects how we think about everything. That's what this alertness is. We are alert for it. We're spiritually awake. One of the ways that we see in the New Testament that we practice spiritual alertness is through prayer. Look at how the Apostle Paul encourages the Ephesian church to be alert. I'm I'm looking at Ephesians chapter 6. You don't have to flip there. You're welcome to. I'll put it on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter six verses sixteen through twenty. This is Paul talking about the, the the hidden reality of the Christian life. In all circumstances, he says, "Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God." Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer. And supplication. To that end, keep alert. There it is. Do you see it? Keep alert. Stay awake. Keep alert with all perseverance. To stay awake, stay spiritually awake the rest of your life. What does that look like? Well, look what he says. Verse 18 making supplication, that's prayer, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, staying awake is recognizing that there are very real spiritual dangers all around us, threatening the perseverance of all of us. And so, we, in response to that reality, what do we do? We pray. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ so that they'll persevere in the faith, so that they'll be ready for Christ's return. Lord, protect them from falling away. Protect them from being led astray. Help them to obey you, to be faithful to you. Give them perseverance in the faith. Strengthen them in the faith so that they'll be ready. But Paul also says we're to stay alert and pray that the gospel would advance. Do you see that as well? Look at what he says. Making supplication also for me. Paul, he's an apostle. He's taking the gospel. That words would be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be kept in the faith. And we pray for them to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. The spread of the gospel is the spread of the reign of Christ over the earth. By praying that Christ's disciples would be faithful to him, and that the gospel of the kingdom would spread, we are keeping alert. We're preparing for his return. We're aware that he's coming back. Stay alert through prayer. Secondly, though, Jesus says back in Matthew 24, be ready be awake and be ready look at this mini parable he gives us starting in verse 43 it's more of a metaphor than a parable verse 43 but know this that if the master of their house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake or stay awake and would not have let his house be broken into therefore you also must be ready like that man was for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So in one, cer- in one sense, alertness is readiness, isn't it? But, but I think when Jesus says be ready, I think this is broader than simply being awake and alert. It's expanding here. Readiness is preparedness. So to use Jesus' mini parable, the, the homeowner must be ready to defend his home against the intruder. Being awake is good. He's gotta be awake. It's necessary for him to be awake, but being awake with a gun is better, right? Be awake and be ready. Readiness is living in obedience to Christ. That's what readiness is. Living in obedience to Christ. How should we be ready? Obey Christ. Now, I wanna be careful here because we don't somehow escape judgment by being good people. You know that. You know that intellectually. Sometimes we don't know that down here. This, this What Jesus is teaching here is not some sort of justification by works. It's not, it's not what he means. But listen, if you've been born again by the Spirit, this is what that means. That means you are a new creation in Christ. That means he's your king. And you live in his kingdom. And your desire, because he's your king, your desire is to obey him. That's what the spirit in us does. He gives us the desire to obey King Jesus. And one of the evidences that we are in Christ, that we've been justified by Christ, is that we live by the spirit. So so when the king is away... We don't cease to obey him simply because we can't see him and and we don't know when he's coming back. Rather, trusting his word. Remember, his word will never pass away. I told us that last week. His word will never pass away. His word is sure. Trusting his word that he will return, we seek to be ready for his return by living in obedience to him. Those who are in Christ Those who have been born again into Christ will be faithful to Christ. And that's our third instruction. Be awake, be ready, and be faithful. Jesus gives us an extended parable here to paint a picture of faithfulness. Really what he does here through the end of chapter 25 is give us three parables all about being ready. The other two will, will come in the fall for us. But the first is here to, to whet our appetite. And it's at the end of our text. And we find here in this parable a comparison between a faithful servant and an unfaithful servant. It begins in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. So so the master leaves his servant in charge of the household, in charge of the ones that he loves. And he is to care for those whom the master loves, his household, in addition to the other servants. This This is an important responsibility. The faithful servant is the one who does that. Pretty simple. Look at verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So so no matter when the master returns, he's going to find the faithful servant being faithful. Why? Does that servant happen to get lucky? And the master just happened to return on a day when he wasn't beating everyone? No, look, he is the, he's a faithful servant. His heart's desire is to please the master. That's who he is. And so he knows, remember he's also wise, he knows that his whole life will be characterized by faithfulness to the master. His whole life. No matter what day of the week, or month, or year, or decade, no matter when the master returns, the faithful servant is found being faithful because he is faithful. Not so with the wicked servant. Look at verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, ah, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I want you to see here, the wicked servant is wicked because of his heart. He has resolved in his heart that the master was not coming back anytime soon. Look, he he says to himself, my master is delayed. And that's what this entire section of teaching is about. Isn't it? We know the master's coming back. We know that he will come back at any moment. So we ought not say he is delayed. This wicked servant chose faithlessness to the master over faithfulness. Because he didn't believe the master's promise. Faithlessness is the tree, trunk, whose root is unbelief. His unbelief led him to bear the fruits of gluttony and drunkenness and the abuse of the other servants. That's who this guy is. Didn't believe the master, so he was faithless to the master. And he bore the fruit of that wickedness. He didn't just have a bad one-off day and get caught. All right, so the master didn't just happen to return on the one day he slipped up. This life of faithlessness was characteristic of who the wicked servant really is. He wasn't faithful to the master because he didn't believe the master and his life his unbelief. Wicked root, wicked tree, wicked fruit. And he was judged for it, wasn't he? He was judged. Look what Jesus says in verse 51. He was cut to pieces, put with the hypocrites, place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. Now, cut to pieces. If you're just reading this passage. You might just skim past that because it feels kind of gruesome, doesn't it? You don't want to picture that. Cut to pieces. This is actually important. It's not just uh, hyperbole. This is prophecy fulfillment. So we see this idea of cutting or breaking to pieces dozens and dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. Just as a little project later on today, type in pieces into your digital Bible search. Just look at how many times you see broken to pieces, crushed to pieces, cut to pieces. It is all over the Old Testament. It's everywhere. And Jesus is very clearly drawing on that, on that imagery, on that idea from the Old Testament of absolute total destruction that's coming on Judgment Day. But there's one passage in particular that very much parallels what Jesus is saying here. And we find that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The beginning of 1 Samuel 2, and I'll, and I'll put it on the screen for you. The beginning of 1 Samuel 2 is what is known as Hannah's song or Hannah's prayer. Hannah was Samuel, the prophet's mother, who prayed for a child. And the Lord gave her Samuel. In return, she dedicated him to the service of the Lord in the temple. And when she did that, on the day she did that, she prayed this prayer. And look what she says concerning the, the Lord at the end of that prayer. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. She says concerning the Lord, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See that? The Lord guards the feet of his faithful ones. That's who we want to be. We want to be the faithful ones. His faithful ones. But look at what happens to the adversaries. They're broken into pieces. You see how Jesus is echoing that? The faithful are preserved. They're rewarded. They're given an inheritance. The wicked. Ruined. Now as a parenthesis, notice also in 1 Samuel, who is it that breaks the enemies to pieces and comes in judgment? It's the Lord, isn't it? Adversaries of the Lord. And in our parable, as as the master who's returning to to reward the faithful and judge the wicked, Jesus is, is lining himself up with that master, isn't he? He's saying he is the Lord, Yahweh who breaks his adversaries, his enemies, into pieces. He is the judge who will judge the ends of the earth and the king who will rule. Never, ever forget. If there's anything that you take from, from this pulpit, never forget that all of Jesus' life is fulfilling the Old Testament. So never miss an opportunity to, to see just how completely he does that. All of the law and prophets point us to Jesus. Okay? Never forget that. Close parentheses. Now let's keep going. Notice also what Hannah says about the people who are broken into the pieces by the Lord. Who are they? They're his adversaries, his enemies. Now I want you to think about this. In Jesus' parable, going back to Matthew 24, did the wicked servant of the master, did he set out... To be an enemy of the master, was that his goal here? To be master's enemy? He didn't, did he? I mean, look, think about it. Prior to his downfall, he had been a servant who was so trusted by the master that he had been given chief servant responsibilities. He was the one who was tasked with overseeing the entire household of the master. His wife, his children, and the other servants. The operations of the household. Whatever business that master was running. He was to instruct others. He was to provide for the other servants. So I don't think it was his his goal in life to make himself an enemy of the man who he relied on. And when he broke faith with the master... He didn't say, I hereby declare myself an enemy of my master. He simply said, master's delayed. That's all he said. My master's delayed. He still, at least in his mind, he still considers the master, the master, doesn't he? He calls him that. Master's delayed. Still thinks of him, even if only in name, he still considers him Lord. And yet when judgment comes, when the Lord returns, this servant whom the entire household would is entrusted to is judged as if he is the worst of the master's enemies. Let me just bring this down for you. If, like the wicked servant, if you say Jesus is Lord, and yet your life says he's not, Listen, your life is telling the truth. Your lips are just making noise. That's why Jesus says the wicked servant is thrown into hell with the hypocrites. To say Jesus is Lord and then to live like he's not, that's hypocrisy. It's pretending to be the Lord's servant when in reality you serve some other master. So if that's you, if that's you, heed the warning of King Jesus today. He will return when you least expect it, and you will be judged. You think, I don't consider myself an enemy of God. He's not your master. You're not living in obedience to him, joyfully desiring to see him glorified in everything that you do, then you're his enemy. You've made yourself to be his enemy. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You can repent of your unbelief, and you can trust him even now. You can trust him. He has died to cleanse you of every sin. Every sin. Even the sin of unbelief. Even the sin of unfaithfulness. Even the sin of hypocrisy. No matter how unfaithful you've been and how unbelieving you've been up to this point, he can make you a faithful servant. Even now, from here on out. Trust him. Sarah Church, by the grace of God, let's stay awake. Amen. But by the Spirit's power, let's be ready. Let's be obedient to Him. And may it be, when Christ returns, we are found to be humbly and faithfully serving our King. Amen.